Welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols. Recently I was talking with Graham Steele about what it's like to be caring for someone who is mentally ill. He told me about the problems that can and often do arise within the home, how learning about mental health first aid had been a great help to him and as a result had gone on to become an accredited trainer. As part of that program, we talked about what government help is available and on February the 10th there was a meeting of state premiers and the Prime Minister to discuss the possibility of better funding for the care of mentally ill. Graham is in the studio with me today and first of all, he's speaking with the Parliamentary Secretary to the Federal Minister for Health, the Honourable Christopher Pine MP. Christopher Pine, your interest in mental health has been well known for some time. In fact, a year ago, you were quoted, and almost to the day, uh, you were quoted as saying that Australia's states and territories stand condemned for their failure to deliver adequate mental health services. Perhaps it's time for them to cede their responsibility for mental health to the Commonwealth. Now, in those days, they were fighting words and they remain fighting words. Do you still feel that way? I certainly still feel that the uh, uh, failure of the state to deliver decent mental health services is the reason why mental health is in such a shambles in Australia at the moment. And the states need to get their act together. Uh, the Commonwealth prepared to help them to do so uh, with financial support as well as coordination and uh, an active support of our own but the fact remains that the states have allowed mental health to run down for 30 years and uh, we are dealing with the consequences of that. Hmm. Do you still feel though that they should cede their responsibility to the Commonwealth? Well I feel that they need to understand <clears throat> that the Commonwealth means business about them getting their act together and uh, we don't want responsibility for mental health. Uh, we have enough of our own responsibilities to deal with, uh, but we certainly do want them to focus on mental health in a way they haven't done before. Now, in the 1960s, there were 30,000 psychiatric beds for about 10 million people in Australia. Today, there are 20 million people in Australia, and there are less than 5,000 psychiatric beds. So you would have expected the number of psychiatric beds to double as our population has doubled, but it shrunk down to less than 5,000. And we are, as a consequence, having to deal with that uh, failure on the part of the states to provide adequate services. I don't want to take over responsibility for mental health, but I do want mental health to be run properly in this country. Is it just a, a, a question of the number of beds, or are there other things involved in it? Oh, there's a great deal more to it than the number of beds, but that's just an example of, of how much uh, the focus has shifted, uh, but without the necessary support being given to the mentally ill. For example, deinstitutionalisation itself is not a bad policy. It's a good policy. Most people would support deinstitutionalisation, but with deinstitutionalisation needs to come community support programs that help and support the mentally ill. Now, that hasn't happened at the state level. There's, there's certainly been a denuding of psychiatric beds from mental institutions, but there's been no community support programs to replace them. And as a consequence, uh, the mentally ill are, through no fault of their own, being very poorly treated. 
The recent COAG meeting uh, focused to some extent on improving the general health of the community and an additional $1.1 billion was allocated over the next five years. Is there anything in this package for mental health? The only thing in that package uh, at COAG of $1.1 billion that will affect the mentally ill is the expanded 24-hour phone service, the call-in centre, which would provide advice to people on all all health aspects, which will also impact on mental health. But by June, by the next COAG meeting, uh, it's expected that the system set up by the states, territories and the Commonwealth to review what is currently being done for the mentally ill will come back with some recommendations for extra spending uh, in particular areas. And so the June meeting of COAG is really the more important one from a mental health perspective. Mm. Yes, I don't want to get bogged down in funding issues uh, because there are many other things that are important in, in mental health. Funding's just part of it. Uh, but the Prime Minister has stated, and you just uh, reiterated, that more funding will be needed. What sort of figures are we talking about, for example, in percentage terms of the total health budget? Oh, I, I can't give, put a figure on these things. The, uh, the Commonwealth increased its spending on mental health by 134% in the last 10 years, and the states have increased theirs in the same time by about 60%. So the Commonwealth certainly putting its money where its mouth is. But we are talking a substantial um, spending, uh, but the actual details of what that is are best left for COAG to announce later in the year or, or mid-year rather than me to preempt that now. Yes, I don't want to ask you how long is a piece of string. Uh, okay. And that's basically what you're saying to me. Um, but will there be a target, say, that over a period of time, Australia will approach the OECD average on mental health expenditure. That is, at the moment, 7% of our total health budget is being spent on mental health, and uh, we'd need to almost double that to, to reach the average. Well, we certainly need to increase spending, and we need to spend it more wisely. As to what those levels will be and what the targets are, that's probably best left to mid-year to be announced. COAG's asked senior officials to report back before June. Who are these senior officials? Are they Commonwealth, State, a combination of two? They're a combination of, of, of all of those. Um, they're senior public servants in health and in uh, Prime Minister and Cabinet and Premier and Cabinet at each of the State, Territories and Commonwealth level. Will there be a chance for community input or do you believe that the community has already had its say? Well, the community has had a substantial say into the uh, uh, obvious need to improve mental health services through things like the Human Rights and Equal Opportunities Commission and Mental Health Council uh, Not for Service report that was handed down later last year in October, which detailed some of the failings at the state level in terms of mental health. And uh, over the last uh, few years, there's been a number of reports uh, into um uh, mental health services and their provision from the state, territory and Commonwealth level. So what we need now is, uh, I think, probably less talk and more action. Uh, we need uh, public servants to come up with um, some very good uh, uh, policies about which we can uh, act on those uh, mid-year. Well, you won't get an argument from me on that one, I can assure you. Um, <laughs> uh, what are you hoping for then from the action plan or are you leaving it entirely to them to come up with what they say? 
Well, the Commonwealth um, has has strong support for increasing the uh, role of non-government organisations and uh, in the need to address accommodation issues and uh, workforce and training issues. And they're areas the Commonwealth can have a say in. And uh, if we spend extra money, uh, we'd rather be spending it in areas the Commonwealth can control rather than simply handing it over to the states. At the same time, we expect the states to increase their spending uh, in areas that will also be of assistance. Would you be expecting uh, to be asked to fund more of the same or some changes? Uh, We'll be asking the uh, bureaucrats to come up with some fresh ideas um, in ways that that respond well to community uh, considerations, what the community wants, and overlaid with all that, of course, is the necessity to actually uh, do some real things to help the mentally ill in accommodation, in services, in community support, in training and in getting back into the workforce because it's a huge resource of people that are not being used uh, and uh, are not contributing fully as much as they'd like to to the community. Now, I just want to press you a little more about how far you're prepared to go with changes to the system. And I I quote that as recently as December, the Mental Health Foundation in Great Britain suggested that crisis centres, retreats and sanctuaries should replace psychiatric hospitals. This would represent a, a very significant change in Australia. And I wonder if we're brave enough to take on a change of this magnitude. Uh, look, uh, it's hard for me to preempt what the uh, uh, interdepartmental inter- committee is going to come up with. Um, the Commonwealth is is hamstrung by the fact that it doesn't have constitutional jurisdiction over mental health services, uh, and the Commonwealth will want to make sure that um, any taxpayers' dollars that are spent are spent in a way that the, the Commonwealth has some control over. We do think that accommodation, which is some of the things that you're mentioning, is a major problem in the community. There isn't enough accommodation, whether it's uh, it's uh, community support, community supported accommodation, or or psychiatric beds. I think the public expects there to be a increase in the number of acute beds, but more importantly, a uh, process from which one moves from an acute bed into independent living. There is nothing in between that. Uh, to support the mentally ill for a period of time after they leave acute care and perhaps hopefully live independently of, uh, of others in their own accommodation. I realise that uh, it's probably up to the states to determine some of these things. For example, should GPs and psychologists be used more in mental health? Do you have a comment on that? Well, we're already, we are increasing the uh, use of allied professionals uh, in mental health and GPs for the Better Outcomes in the Mental Health Program, which the Commonwealth funds. Only last week I announced the scrapping of the cap of payments under the Better Outcomes in the Mental Health Program so that GPs can continue to enjoy extra payments for seeing mentally ill patients after they've done the appropriate training, which was capped previously but is now no longer capped. And um, the mental health training requires a certain number of subsequent visits after a primary visit, as well as uh, the use of allied health professionals like psychologists, uh, occupational therapists and others, so that there's a holistic approach to a mentally ill person's particular problem. So we're going to treat the whole person, which is a great step forward. Um, well, that's the idea, is to treat, try and treat the whole person, 
uh, to take them from uh, perhaps substandard accommodation, uh, lack of, uh, of, of care and uh, uh, early intervention to a point where they can be independently living, being trained for the workforce and getting them into jobs. And that's the best way for them to enjoy good mental health going forward. And are we going to recognise the role of carers in all of this? Well, the, the Prime Minister's already um, uh, recognised over the last couple of years the role that carers pay, have played through various uh, extra support uh, through the Centrelink system for carers um, and respite for carers. So uh, we've, we have done that and we will con- we'll hopefully continue to do that because carers play an incredibly important role Respite is one of the major factors in all that, um, and one of the things that Commonwealth does have some control over is um, accommodation for respite. Mr Pine, thank you very much for your time. I pleasure, thank you. look forward very much to the outcome of the COAG meeting in June, and I hope we can perhaps talk to you again at that time and um, learn a little bit more about the progress we're going to make in Australia over the next several years. Well, it's an area where once you get an involvement and interest in mental health, it becomes a passion. So I, like you, will be working to see the outcomes of uh, COAG in June being ones that put the mentally ill first and foremost in the health sector. You're listening to Wellbeing, and Graham Steele is my guest today, and he has been talking with Christopher Pine MP, the Parliamentary Secretary to the Federal Minister for Health. We've just heard what Christopher Pine had to say, but... Does he paint too rosy a picture? Uh, Now let's get some reaction from some of the people who are involved directly with mental health. With me in the studio is Trish Palmer, who is a consumer of mental health services. Trish is also studying social work at the University of Newcastle. On the line we have Leonie Creighton, the General Manager of On-Track Community Programs, which provides a variety of services to people with mental illness and other disabilities. Leonie Creighton also chairs the New South Wales Mental Health Coordinating Council, whose not-for-service report caused something of a stir recently. Hi, Leonie. Hello there, And in Melbourne we have Professor Tony Jorm from the Origin Research Centre at the University of Melbourne. Professor Jorm's area of interest lies in community aspects of mental illness. He and Betty Kitchener conceived and wrote the Mental Health First Aid course, which is currently being rolled out across Australia and overseas. Hi, Tony. Hi. Okay, Trish, if I can start with you. Mm -hmm. As a consumer of mental health services, do you take heart from what Christopher Pine has said? Um, I think as a consumer, and speaking for other consumers, I would see it as it sounds like a lot of talk and not a lot of action, and that they seem to think it's going to be a simple task, not a simple task, but it's going to just come the way they want it to go and there's not going to be any problems, but it's a huge task they're asking. Leonie? I was heartened by some degree to hear somebody talk about passion for people uh, living with a mental illness and that was good to hear someone say that. And I do congratulate COAG for taking a stand on this. My concern was when um, Christopher Pine mentioned that psychiatric beds was a form of accommodation and um, even though he did state that we need more supported accommodation he did also state very clearly that um, you know we have decreased the amount of psychiatric beds in Australia and I think that's been a good thing 
even though we haven't increased supported accommodation. And I just don't think hospital beds are a form of accommodation for people. So I, I, I would just um, be watching that very closely, that that's not the only outcome that we achieve, is that we increase psychiatric uh, long-stay beds. You don't see the number of beds then as a, a, a relevant measure? I do think it's relevant to increase the number of beds, but that's only one aspect of psychiatric care. And when we speak about um, the balance, getting the balance right, we really do need to have that whole spectrum for, you know, from the acute care setting. And we do need a, a you know, a percentage of long-term beds, but a lot of accommodation is, more accommodation is needed. And uh, New South Wales has started that process, but we've got a long way to go. There are many people living in isolation out there. And I just don't think hospitals are, are particularly good places to live. All right, Tony. Um, I was heartened that it was on the agenda, Graham, because I think this is a first that the Prime Minister and the Premiers are saying this is a big issue, we've got to do something about it. It's a start, but really we have to wait to hear the details of the announcement in June. I think that will be it. We've had policies before in Australia, we've had national policies. They all sound good, but it really hasn't produced the degree of change or the increase in resources that are required. So I think there's been a level of disappointment at the policy level. We really need to see action and resources. The other thing I think was a little bit disappointing to me is I think this whole issue of the Commonwealth and the states has to be sorted out. I mean, we have a system of health based around the view at the time of federation of the states, where health was totally a state responsibility, and then gradually over the 20th century, the Commonwealth piecemeal took more and more responsibility for bits of it, but it's got this very complex hybrid system the Commonwealth and states, the states basically would have major responsibility for sort of specialised mental health services. When you get into the sort of primary care level around GPs and the better outcomes and so on, then that's the Commonwealth responsibility. When you go back further to the community, the things like prevention and first aid and care support and so on, that's a very mixed and underfunded area altogether. It just, if anybody was sitting down to design a system that I don't think in any way you would come up with a system that we have. And it would be good, really, I think, ultimately, to go back to scratch and say, how could we organise this properly? Mm. Uh, instead of mm. the thing that's been added to gradually over a century as the need arises. And I think we're just going to get more complexity mm. of that sort. It's good. It's on the agenda. It would be great to see what's in the action plan. Let's hope there's more action than policy. And ultimately, I think the big reform about who runs it all has yet to come. Yes, you've mentioned a number of things that are wrong with the system and although I don't want to spend too much time on the negatives uh, but they say, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, what is broke about the mental health system at the moment, Trish? Um, access for people to get into hospital. They want people to be proactive about their mental health and when people know that they're unwell, trying to get into hospital is a huge issue for a lot of people trying to get into hospital and being told that they're not sick enough to be in hospital, but they should be there, and actually staying in hospital. Is that common, Tony? Do you find that in Melbourne or Leonie? Do you find that in northern New South Wales? Um, we do, um, and I suppose from um, the non-government perspective, we see that it would be great if people were assisted to stay out of hospital, that if there were more community support, um, psychosocial rehabilitation, pre-vocational programs, all of that community sector support, that people wouldn't have to 
get so unwell before they get um, into hospital. Though I agree with Trish, people have to be so um, acutely unwell to um, receive treatment in acute hospital beds these days that, that it's an absolute trauma for the consumer, for the family, and I think even for the, the staff involved in that um, admission. It's quite traumatic now. It's, it's a huge um, event and I would like to see that we really put resources into avoiding those events. Um, there's been a number of studies that are saying people with um, acute episodes of this magnitude um, are, are looking at um, long-term brain injury. Let's not allow people to get that unwell. Is part of the process in providing more accommodation, sort of step-down accommodation, is that important? Um, Look, I don't want to dominate the discussion, but I, I, I believe that supported accommodation does work. And also, when if it's not supported accommodation, also rehabilitation and recovery centres. We've gone away from that sense of community. People, if they are unwell, they have nowhere to go and there's no sense of community, no place of their own. They're isolated. Even some of the programs that we've um, started in New South Wales, which I think are great, like, you know, Hazzy in the Home, things like that, which is Housing Accommodation Support Initiative. Sometimes it isolates people even more and we all need a place to begin from or somewhere to go to, you know, get resources, um, have friends, all those things. The people with the mental illness don't have those places. We've gradually taken away funding for those types of programs. They're looked down upon, they're frowned upon and I'm just um, I, I firmly believe that they work. I believe those sort of things work too. People need communities and networks of social support so they can go forward. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important. My guest today on wellbeing is Graham Steele and he's chairing a discussion on the way forward for mental health in Australia. Well, we've touched on what may be seen as the issue of stigma with mental illness. And Tony, you do a fair bit of work in that area, I understand? Yes, that's right. Okay. Who's responsible then for attacking stigma? Uh, I think we all are. We all are. I mean, a lot of the discussion we've had has been about uh, people with the more severe mental disorders like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. But, you know, the, 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 the bigger number, they, they have the more severe needs, the bigger number of people with the common disorders like anxiety disorders and depression... I think there we're dealing with an issue where a lot of people aren't getting any professional help at all. So it's not just a matter of the whether they're getting the right of the support and they're getting community support. They're actually getting nothing. They're not recognised at all. And part of this perhaps is the you know the, the people feeling of shame or reluctance to come forward or reluctance to label themselves as having a mental disorder um, and delays in seeking help. So you know if we could get more, more people with those common disorders into treatment, I think reduction in stigma and greater knowledge in the community would be important there. I think for people with the more severe disorders, the psychotic disorders, the vast majority will get to some sort of professional help eventually, but sometimes there are delays, and if we could get that help early on, um, get it to them earlier rather than delays, which can then, if they're like young people, it can affect their, uh, their educational achievement and their uh, occupational achievement and their relationships with key people in their lives. If we could get in early there, maybe we could stop some of those sort of secondary things happening. Okay, we've talked about the need to tackle stigma. How do we do it? I think we are seeing big changes in that area in Australia. 
and I think one of the things that has changed is that if you use the term mental illness in the past, what did the average person think of? I would think they would think of somebody with a, with a long-term psychotic illness. I think if you, if you mention mental illness now and you ask people what they think of, they'll think of Jeff Gallup. They'll think of somebody with a common disorder like depression who is in employment, maybe achieving well, and they're having this period where they're unable to and you expect that they're going to sort of recover. I, I think in the past, that minority uh, situation, the person with a long-term severe illness, which is really a small minority, the stigma on that has spread out to cover everything else and made people reluctant to accept that label and to be want to, want to be part of that group of people, but now that we're seeing a different prototype, as it were, for mental illnesses, I think the more positive view will then spread out to people with the longer term, more severe problems. I mean, there is a limit, I think, with stigma. There is a limit that there is real disability there. And I mean, what we've got to overcome is unrealistic stigma. Um, we can't deny that there are disabilities. That's why we need resources to go into these to try and overcome those problems. But there can be unrealistic beliefs, for example, about people being violent and so on, that just, which are just sort of out of proportion or yeah, absolutely. Or, uh, mm. not well informed, mm. or unrealistic views about the nature of certain treatments. There's a stigma on treatment, there's a stigma on mental health professionals as well. And, you know, we need to question the basis of some of those things. Mm. Having personal contact with somebody who dispels your stigmatising images is very important. And that can only occur when more people stand up. So it's a sort of uh, a circular thing. The stigma reduces, more people are prepared to stand up and say, that's me, that's my family, and I'm prepared to talk about it. And as more of them do, that will help overcome stigma as well. So I think we're in the, we're in the, the process of a, of a revolution, a cultural change in this area. But it's got a long way to go still. Okay, Trish, can I ask you if you have ever felt stigma? I think it all depends what type of stigma you're talking about, internal or external. Most consumers have internal stigma where they, you know, feel horrible because they have actually been diagnosed with a mental illness, feel guilty, and there's the external of other people's attitudes towards them. Um, I've been very lucky. I've had a very supportive family and a very supportive social network, but I know a lot of consumers have experienced lots of different forms of stigma, and it's not. it really affects their mental health and the way they can cope with surviving. The fact that you know people stigmatise them as a, someone that has a mental illness and they're not worth associating with or talking to. So it does have a major effect on their mental health. The Mental Health First Aid course, of course, is doing a fair amount to um, reduce stigma mm -hmm. uh, by educating the community. Tony, is it, there any, any evidence yet to suggest that it's working? Yes, we've done a number of trials looking at the effects of the mental health first aid course on, on people who become first aiders and um, we found that it does reduce stigma and also increase knowledge at the same time. What we have less evidence on is the effects on the people who are recipients of first aid. But we have sort of gathered stories from first aiders about the people that they help and the effects and we find overwhelmingly there are positive things going on there and they're often very subtle things, they're not dramatic things, they're like people being more accepting, people who would have been, they say in the past, you know, I might have been critical of that person or I might have been less tolerant of that person and now I understand what they're going through and I can stick with them better, 
So I think we, you know, we are seeing reduction of the stigma, but are translating into behavioural change in people with that sort of training. And I hope we get to the situation eventually where we'll find it'll be as standard as conventional first aid training and people in certain occupations, like if you want to be a teacher or, or, or uh, in a whole lot of human services areas, we think a mental health first aid certificate is a requirement of that, of, um, of, of that professional training. Leonie, um, the coming up with an action plan, how far should we be prepared to go with change? Well, I think um, some of the, the other guests, you know, we said maybe start again. And my concern is that we just have more of the same. We put more money into and more resources into what we've already done. And the concern for me is it didn't work. We have to acknowledge that what we've done in the last 30 years hasn't worked. We do have huge amounts of stigma, and I know that that is lessening. My own experience has it, you know, with a family member, it has lessened. But I think we, we don't want to see more of the same. We need to start again, look at some really innovative um, solutions. And I know that the COAG's um, action plan, they want input from senior bureaucrats. I think Christopher Pine's answer was... Well, we do need to get back to the community because we haven't really consulted with the community in the action plan to, to get a, what, what is actually going to work out there. And I would like to see that we, we start again, just go back and say, we didn't do this right. How can we include it? I'd like to see the balance, you know, tip the iceberg away from acute care and crisis uh, care. That's what seems where a lot of the um, resources go across the state, not only financial resources, but um, staff resources all go into crisis care. Let's see prevention, early intervention, promotion, all those things included in the plan, not as an add-on. They always seem to be added on, but not as a basis for the plan. Trish, um, would earlier intervention have made much difference to your situation? Yes, it would have. Yeah. Yes, it would have. My sister also has an illness, so my parents didn't realise it was happening to me too. And if I had somebody, and that was a long time ago, and we had no support services, so yeah, early intervention is a really important aspect for mental health. Would you say you you would have had to go through the the depth of treatment or the acuteness of treatment? Probably not the acuteness. Yeah, it would have been a lot better, I think if it had been picked up a bit earlier. Okay. Well, what advice can we give those who are developing the action plan? Now, this is a, a very bold statement to, or question to ask. Tony? Um, I'd just like to comment about on that aspect that Christopher Pine said. You asked him, Graham, about what community consultation has been done. He said, well, you know, we've had the Human Rights Report and not the service, etc. I don't think there has been consultation in the sort of things that your other guests have been talking about, what we've heard about is consultation about the, there are problems. Mm. But I don't think we've really thought about how we could do this better in a more positive way. I don't think there has been the consultation. And I'm really surprised that he didn't mention the Senate committee mm. that's reporting into mental illness, which is due to report soon, because I think I've read you know, a fair bit of the testimony there, and I think we are getting there more... You know, you're getting the problems coming up again. They're obviously there and have been reported again, but people are reporting other positive alternatives as well, and I think maybe that's the source of information that I hope the action plan would, would tap into. Leonie? 
Um, I agree with Tony. That's a, you know, again, I I didn't um, think that we had uh, community consultation with the not for service report or with the human rights inquiry. They were all in regard to what's wrong. I would like to see um, a summit on how we can get it right. And I know with the drug summit, they did come up with some very innovative and um, excellent strategies. And maybe we need something like that where we do involve the community. We do say, well, how do you think it could get better? And there's some great models all across Australia of what's working. They're um, not huge cost... Uh, you know, they're not they're not hugely costly. They, they use what's already there in the community. They value add. And I think that we should be listening to some of those um, services and, and looking at some of those models very closely. And finally, Trish. Yeah, I think it's important to get the consumer's perspective as to what they see assists them rather than other people. You know, it's, they're the ones that it's happening for. And consumers and carers need to have a major input into that. Well, can I thank everybody for their input to today's program? I think we've raised quite a number of issues that uh, we might look at again, as I said to um, Christopher Pine, come back after the uh, COAG meeting in June and see what they have actually come up with. Uh, We can hope we get some input from uh, the community into the process of developing the action plan, but we can just wait and see. Thank you very much, everybody. My guest today has been Graham Steele and he's been chairing a discussion with Trish Palmer who is a consumer of mental health services and is also studying social work at the University of Newcastle with Leonie Craden, the General Manager of On Track Community Programs and with Professor Tony Jorm from the Origin Research Centre at the University of Melbourne. On behalf of all of us here, until the next time we meet, we wish you well.